1: Yes, it is, and welcome back, July twentieth, twenty twenty one, six zero two five zero eight zero nine six zero. Happy to take calls with my in studio guest Lewis Holman. Usually joined by Hugh Holman, who's out of the country today. So Lewis Holman, who is the managing director of Insight Analytics LLC, is with us. Lewis, you should know how popular you and uh, and uh, Hugh are, are are now on this show. I I now routinely get emails. Uh, on uh, on Tuesdays, asking if the Hallmans will be on today.
2: That's and, really great to hear, Seth.
1: Well, what's funny is you guys ask me the same damn question, <laughs> and I say if it's just assume yes. Tuesday we have a regular thing. It's you don't ask your wife, are we still married? You know, I I, I, don't I... think. <laughs>
2: I, I, have I, was not at your yet, I have not yet had that issue yeah, okay. come up.
1: <laughs> so it is a delight to have Lewis. We talk about politics, philosophy, COVID six zero two five zero eight zero nine six zero. Before we do our traditional uh analysis of where we are in COVID, um uh you uh you have spent some time on this show talking about your peer group and politics. And you said uh, to me over the uh top of the hour break That you were kind of intrigued by uh, by what I was talking about with regard to um, elected officials who represent my party, the party I'm in, Republican Party or the conservative movement, if you prefer. Um, I was thinking of Rand Paul today. I don't agree with him on any on everything. Uh, But increasingly, I respect and do agree, certainly with him on COVID, but increasingly respect just his willingness to actually stand for something and do something.
2: Absolutely. We have
1: 50 Republican senators and you and I could name five who are like that. That's a problem. Go ahead.
2: You know, I I think that it's actually sort of a, a typical state of affairs in some sense. But it's one that sadly we don't realize because. We're scarcely confronted with national emergencies, in which case the rubber really does meet the road, and we truly do need those with principle to take a stand and do something right. Um, The last time that I really remember being overwhelmingly impressed by principle in an elected official was not actually a Republican. It was Mm -hmm. Russ Feingold back uh, right after the September 11th— Wisconsin
1: senator Mm -hmm. big on campaign finance. Yes, indeed.
2: He -hmm. was the the only senator— I think he was the only member of the legislative, legislature at all to oppose entering into Afghanistan and oppose the, the war on terror. Interesting, And that was astonishing to me because at that point, even though it was ostensibly a Republican initiative, everyone was, was caught up in the moment. But Russ Feingold had the courage to stand alone. And I think that that is a remarkable and rare and valuable thing that we ought to cherish in our elected officials.
1: John Kennedy famously wrote a book called Profiles in Courage, and there's a debate about whether he actually wrote it or not, but it doesn't matter, His point the point being that he attached his name to it at a minimum, right? And the, the book was a historical overview of, uh, I don't remember how many, 10 or 12 political leaders who... Did that sort of thing over the years, mm-hmm. whether it was uh, whether it was uh, the Henry Clay or whether you know the the kind of people who stand out that end up getting studied in history, right? That's kind of the funny thing about it. Those that do take a strong stand for something usually do make history, or at least the histor- history books. Um, it, it's interesting because I say I, I say that because. The tendency for so many, particularly Republicans, is not to try to aim for history, but to aim for tomorrow's newspaper, to please tomorrow's newspaper editorialists and writers.
2: And, and that's exactly the criticism I would actually take with what with what you just said. And okay. that what what it indeed is happening is that, that very often we're not thinking about making it into the history books. And indeed it's not even I think Taking a principle and making a stand that that means that you are studied or, or worthy of our remembrance or courageous. It's that you take a stand for something unpopular. Right principally. That's why today, even though everyone on the left is very good-willed about saying how much they don't like racism, that is not an unpopular position at this point. It's not <laughs> it's not controversial and it doesn't require an iota of courage. None of these people would have been abolitionists in the 1860s or sheltering Jews in the 1940s. These people by and large are going along with the pack and running with crowd mentality whatever the nightly news authority tells them to do. They are not pushing the envelope, they're not thinking critically and they're they are not evaluating this as a question of fundamental human decency or one of rights. They're thinking, what am I told to do? Okay, let me regurgitate that. These are not leaders of men here. These are sheep.
1: And I think it got worse. I think it got worse uh, with a lot of things that have happened over the last 30 years, certainly curricula. I think in our elementary and secondary schools, I think certainly there was a top-down downwashing press, pressure from the universities. That's certainly one aspect of it, Lewis. Another, in my view, another aspect another aspect of it is honestly uh, the, de- the demasculation of men, the emasculation of men.
2: Sure. Yeah, there's, there's definitely been something going on there. I, I honestly think that between 1960 and now, something happened, a, a series of things happened, and I think very often... We're still trying to wrap our head around what precisely the cavalcade of effects was that took place, you know, between sort of just after the Second World War and right now. Can it I has suggest
1: showed, one, uh, one that we seem to never rid ourselves of? Uh, I think one of them had to do with the welfare
2: programs of the Great Society. I agree which, more. Right, you, you're with Home me. I'm soul. Is very big on this point. Yes, right.
1: we replaced fatherhood and men. Uh, With government as husbands and fathers. Which you
2: then see in the decline of uh, uh, marriage rates, the rise in divorce rates, and the staggering and shocking rise in uh, rates of illegitimacy.
1: Yes, which in and of itself then produces a uh, cyclical uh, or generational set of horribles that can lead to— uh, generational crime, generational dropouts, illiteracy. Right. So, so actually, generational substance on abuse.
2: on this point, it's very interesting. So, so before about 1960, one of the things that's happened since then. Another, another facet of this beyond the Great Society, sure. maybe. Uh, um, I think it's but one. I have other
1: things, but yeah, yeah that, stay there, with there are
2: many, yeah, many yeah, things that yeah, happened, yeah. you know, between now and then. Yeah. But the another thing is the the imposition of an elite uh, sort of intellectual meritocracy and the expansion of the university system, going from 5% of the country having bachelor's degrees to about 50% now. So in in this... Going
1: from four-year graduation rates to five- and six-year averages. Right. Do you realize it's a five- and six-year average?
2: No, absolutely. You know, I myself took 10 years.
1: Well, you did the smart thing, actually. (laughs) You, you, You didn't take 10 years. You
2: got out you know there there is that i uh, i couldn't stand uh, scratching at the at the padded <laughs> you, room you, anymore you
1: said to the dean i've had about as much fun as i can take yeah, <laughs> anyway go ahead go
2: ahead and so but one of the things that that had happened is that we we have a an enormous expansion in the role of university education in our society and part of what's what's been going on with that is that we have um that then means that we are are training ourselves psychologically in in very very profound ways so we're introducing massive segments into a a workforce that previously, previously wouldn't have been able to get into those and as we've been doing that they've been sitting and being been being trained by a chosen series of experts which that has effectively opened the gateway for all kinds of wonderful cultural indoctrination and retraining.:
1: yeah, no, I think that's right. so we, so I, I certainly talk about uh, the welfare the welfare programs of the 1960s. We had a massive reform of it in 1996, only to be undone through presidential action quietly. In the Obama administration, so we 've lost pretty much most of the welfare reform we were patting ourselves on the back of in the mid to late nineties but that 's but one I think the education uh, the uh, the education pedagogy has changed an awful lot, certainly the textbooks, certainly the curricula. The reforms in education that have uh, infiltrated our, our 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 schools i think are doing. The kind of damage that we now see today where we have large segments of our population, roughly aged, oh, I don't know, 12 to 40, ages between the ages of 12 and 40, that speak of a country that I don't recognize when they speak of the United States. It is such a different level of historical and civic understanding that it's beyond two languages. It's almost as if we live in two different countries. I really feel that the difference between the way people are educated now versus what we were given growing up um, is so different that we we are in part, we'll take the break and pick up on this on the other side, we are in part creating aliens, not illegal aliens, but aliens homegrown, alien to a country they don't understand or know. And I wonder if we can pick up on that when we come back. Let's do it. I'm Seth Leibson, and you're welcome to join Lewis Holman and me. Me. 602-508-0960. We'll be right back. This Holman. I'm getting Lewis Holman to like a little country music. I think I am. Oh, just a little. Slowly we erode. Slowly, slowly we it's my own Chinese one-drop torture. Yep. Yeah.
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> we were talking about a bifurcated country before the break. Yeah, S-
2: Seth, you made a really great observation um, about the idea that Republicans and Democrats are seeing things in totally different ways and that this has caused us to exist as sort of not one but two separate cultures. And I actually – I don't know that it's quite – Republicans and Democrats. I don't think that that's exactly the fault line. But I do think that there is something very much like that going on. And it has more to do with the makeup of our elite class. So it's it's part of the point I was trying to make in the last segment about universities. But I had a a mild stroke and forgot (laughs) what I was trying to say at the time. But the idea is basically this, that... In 1960, our elite class uh, was not very differently educated than the rest of us, by and large. They were integrated uh, geographically by zip code. So if you looked at a typical zip code, you were likely to have a a, a mix of uh, uh, poor and rich neighbors living side by side, all within a few blocks. And generally, you had a lot more what you might describe as face time between people of various... uh, uh, social circles in okay. the US. And now what has happened is a complete breakdown of that very healthy ecosystem, where because we are increasingly using the uh, meritocratic university pro- uh, process, and I mean meritocratic in quotes there, um, where typically now our political class is effectively whoever's charmed out of Harvard Law's graduating class. Now we're having a phenomenon where elites meet at school, get married at school, and have all of their chi- their, their children there from that same small same subpopulation. Mm-hmm. And they then move to different zip codes from the rest of the population. They engage, they watch different TV shows from the rest of the population. They engage in different hobbies from the rest of the population. They eventually start to speak a very different language from the rest of the population. And so what's happening now is that we've got really two parallel societies in in which we have our, our overlords who are content to see the rest of us as little more than beasts of burden that need to be shepherded and, and kept uh, uh, safe and healthy. For
1: their own good.
2: Yes. Yes, indeed. That's what
1: they say. What they mean is for our own good. But they will tell you for your own good. Right.
2: Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. And, and it really is. It's this bifurcation, public I think. Public health
1: is a pretty good one, too, by the way, when you think about what that entails. Absolutely. When you think about p- notions of committees on public
2: safety, right? Yes, indeed. And, and these are exactly the kind of moral busybodies who are then organizing these behaviors and trying to dictate terms to the rest of us. So I absolutely agree. There is a culture bifurcation going on, but it's between the common man and the elite. And there's some others, too. I Let me, let me run something by
1: you as long as we're on this. I didn't know we were going to talk about this, and it's great. It's fine. As I say, everything is related. Um, the fault line you said may not be Republican and Democrat. I agree with that. And it may be what you said. There are other fault lines that uh, we 're just beginning to grasp maybe or understand it took a um, you 're young it was someone younger than you I think it uh, it, it took a twenty year old it took a twenty year old to tell me this the other day um, Tell me if you agree she is um, someone who was born in mexico and 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 legally lives here uh, is a citizen of the United States and family from Mexico, and spent much of her life working, much of her young life, high school years, working in restaurants. And she said to me the other day in a conversation, something I had never picked up before, and I think she's right, about bifurcation. She said, we don't quite have the divisions right here, and the divisions in society quite right. She goes, what I learned in working in these restaurants, in the kitchen, Almost no one was legal. They were making about two bucks an hour. They would give their right eye, she said, to be a black American who's a citizen of America. When the BLM protest types go for uh, 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 go forward, she goes, the illegal immigrants she knows have no concept of what they're talking about. They would do nothing more. They would wish for nothing more than to be in the shoes of those who are protesting on the streets about how bad this country is. That's a division that has yet to be exploited, but I think is about to be. Exploited may be the wrong word. Understood. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a cleavage that I don't think America understands. I didn't even think about it until I had this conversation with her. Do you agree with that, so, that it's citizenship?
2: I, I do agree with her assessment, and I also think that that is one of the large... Uh, sort of glowing weak spots in the current Democratic Party voting blocks is that tension that you have between uh, the interests of all of its competing demographics. Because as much as the left tries to pretend that what we have is a culture of white supremacy versus everybody, in actuality, every minority group has its own very, very different set of interests and and, uh, uh, sort of... Policies characteristics that it traits, it could, cultures right, absolutely. within
1: cultures yeah i mean desires needs no, all of absolutely. it absolutely
2: and so you know back back to her point i i think that the and the way I, I look at it is that blm cannot possibly be right about the nature of american society because people vote with their feet look at the lines for immigration from virtually every country on earth and tell me if they it ask if they think of us as a racist hellhole all right. you know because
1: I don't know of another country that has the images we have on their borders.
2: I don't don't know of another country. I don't either. I don't know of any country on Earth with near the universal demand to be a citizen. Right. There is none. There is none.
1: The, um, The other thing I wanted to point out, too, I think it's important to say, is when we talk about I was talking about, I think, welfare and the welfare reforms that took place under Johnson's Great Society have brought us to some of the point we're in. I I think, too, there's an element of um, not just paternalism, but a different kind of racism. You are beginning to hear it now, if you listen closely enough, when you hear perhaps— For example, arguments against voter ID. You are beginning to hear a little bit of this.
2: Is it a bigotry of low expectations? That's one way to
1: think of it. That's certainly one way to think of it. African-Americans can't get IDs. So actually, there's they some- They can't some access photocopiers. They don't know how to use the internet. I'm quoting the vice president and president over the last month.
2: There's some fascinating work on this, actually. Um, I, I found a study. I wish I, I had it more available right now so I could I could cite it for you. But I was reading a, a an academic journal the other day, and there was a study looking at the the speeches that congressional candidates make between, before audiences of different races- And what was fascinating about it is that Republicans, if you if you have a Republican candidate before a largely white audience and a largely black audience, they give the same speech. But the Democrat will give words loaded uh, on competence and systematizing to the white audience and words about empathy and feeling and trust to the black audience.
1: They
2: they can't they do not want to use the same kind of systematizing language. Interesting.
1: Talk to me about systematizing language when we come back. Also, I want to run the Fauci uh, Paul audio by you, too, for your take on it, as I promised the audience I would. I'm Seth Leapson. He's Lewis Hallman, 602-5080-960. Be right back. Welcome back to The Seth Leapson Show. Lewis Hallman is my guest, and I uh, was looking forward to it today because of the hearings in the United States Senate with Anthony Fauci and uh, his arguments with Rand Paul. I wanted to play a little bit of it. It starts with Rand Paul. It's worthwhile. Just bear with me, and then we'll get Lewis's take on it. Go ahead, Chris.
0: Viruses that in nature only infect animals were manipulated in the Wuhan lab to gain the function of infecting humans. This research fits the definition of the research that the NIH said was subject to the pause in 2014 to 2017, a pause in funding on gain of function. But the NIH failed to recognize this, defines it a way, and it never came under any scrutiny. Dr. Richard E. Bright, a molecular biologist from Rutgers, described this research in Wuhan as, The Wuhan lab used NIH funding to construct novel chimeric SARS-related coronaviruses able to infect human cells and laboratory animals. This is high-risk research that creates new potential pandemic pathogens, potential pandemic pathogens that exist only in the lab, not in nature. This research matches, these are Dr. Ebright's words, this research matches, indeed epitomizes, the definition of -of gain-of-function research done entirely in Wuhan, for which there was supposed to be a federal pause. Dr. Fauci, knowing that it is a crime to lie to Congress, Do you wish to retract your statement of May 11th where you claimed that the NIH never funded gain-of-function research in Wuhan? Senator Paul, I have never lied before the Congress, and I do not retract that statement. This paper that you are referring to was judged by qualified staff up and down the chain as not being gain-of-function. So what was let you me take, finish you take an animal virus and you increase its transmissibility to humans right. you're saying that's not gain of function yeah that is correct and and senator paul you do not know what you are talking about quite frankly and i want to say that officially you do not know what you are talking about let's okay you get NIH, one person let's read from the NIH. can i answer of, gain of function? this is your definition that you guys wrote it says that scientific research that increases the about, transmissibility among mammals is gain of function. They took animal viruses that only occur in animals and they increased their transmissibility to humans. How you can say that is not gain of function? It is not. It's a dance, and you're dancing around this because you're trying to obscure responsibility for four million people dying around the world okay. from a oh. pandemic. And, and let's, let's hold it Dr. there, Chris, if you to, don't well, mind. Now you-
1: if you don't mind, it's inter- the thing that's interesting to me, and I, I don't know this the way you'd know it, Lewis, as well as you know it. Okay. But what's interesting to me is that Fauci goes immediately to vituperation and, and 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 a personal attack. He never actually gives a definition of gain of function. He just says Rand Paul doesn't know what he's talking right. about. Right? Does he, Rand Paul know what he's talking
2: about? Uh, Ran, uh, Rand Paul does, in fact, know what he's talking about. The the definition he cited is commonly used by academics in. Virtually every major U research university dealing with this issue, so uh, but one thing did strike me as I was listening to Dr. Fauci Blather, and it was the the concept that state lotteries pay for education. Now they don't really pay for education. What happens is the lottery takes in a lot of money, it goes into the state budget and because money is fungible, some portion of that money now gets spent towards education that wouldn't be, and we use really most of the lottery winnings for other things now, To the degree that we didn't fund the gain-of-function research in Wuhan, we did, in fact, uh, the Pentagon sent $39 million to uh, EcoStar Alliance, which was the NGO responsible for doing that work at the Wuhan lab. Now, whether that $39 million was used for... Specifically, gain of function research, or whether it was used to clear space in the budget for other money to be used for gain of function research, is immaterial to me. We supported the work in that lab. Further, uh, there was a good article in The Scientist uh, in 2015.
1: Can I ask you to hold it till we come back? Absolutely. All right. I'm Seth Liebsen, more on gain of function, Anthony Fauci, and Rand Paul with Lewis Hallman when we come back. 602 be right back. I'm making you like disco, too, huh, Lewis? Yes, you are, A little Seth. bit. A little, a little Casey in the Sunshine Band there. Uh, one more. I want to circle back on two things. I want to finish the point you were making about that article. But before we do that, the funding issue that Fauci is probably hanging his legal hat on, or at least protecting his legal hide with.
2: Right. It's that point I tried yeah. to make. Yeah. I, I tried to do it a little clumsily with the lottery. But let me see if I could be more more explicit with this. So – The Pentagon paid this uh, NGO, Eco Health Alliance, $39 million. And Fauci is making the claim that we did not directly sponsor this gain-of-function research. So let me present an alternate hypothetical. Let's say that this NGO has two budget items, research in coronavirus and tongue dispensers. So if we paid— Depressors. Tongue depressors. Yeah, yeah, excuse me. Mm -hmm. If we paid $39 million to their tongue depressor budget— well, this would then free up $39 million directly to go to their research in coronavirus. And Dr. Fauci would technically be to correct in that we did not fund their coronavirus research, technically. Although, if you look at it from any kind of consequentialist lens or any kind of morality, I would argue that we really did.
1: Right, because if you know an institution, whether it's an NGO or Insight Analytics, if you know an institution is doing something um, either either, either violative of U.S. law or uh, immoral, Um, if you know that and you fund them for whatever purpose, then you are funding their immoral efforts. That's the moral or legal crime. Exactly right. You can't say – I can't say (laughs) – I can't say I don't support lower taxes while I financially support Americans for Tax Reform and the Heritage Foundation.
2: That would be incongruous, at least. Right. You could you could make the cl- you could say that literally, but you wouldn't. be But I would much be wrong.
1: Right. I would be wrong. Yes, indeed. I am given money to organizations that so do just that. The
2: other the other yeah. piece that was very interesting, though, as long as I, I have you, and we're talking about the Wuhan, as long Lab, as you have me, okay. Is that <laughs> yeah, <it's> good? <laughs> Politico ran a story as well back in uh, uh, March this year, talking uh-huh. about how in 2017 u s Embassy officials in China actually toured the Wuhan lab. These are medical experts by the way, that were attached to the embassy, and they found that not only were the lab 's safety standards woeful that but that the lab also desperately was short of trained technicians to run it. They painted the picture of a of a of a complete hazard, and why are we now surprised that the hazard has blossomed into this lovely emergency that the federal government is now going to use to, well, deprive of our civil liberties and generally ratchet up its ability to control all of our lives.
1: It's not as if they come, though—I was doing this with John Tierney from the Manhattan Institute in the previous hour, Lewis—it's not as if they come to the court of the public opinion or the public with clean hands. It seems that it it turns out that federal or perhaps any level of government public health prognosticator or quote-unquote expert gets the same kind of professional immunity that's not written anywhere that I know of that political analysts get. There's no price for being wrong, and there's certainly no... um, there's there's certainly no demerits that prevent you from succeeding when you're wrong. I learned that Anthony Fauci as the head. Of, Anthony Fauci is the head of Na, uh, National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases. Um, during the AIDS pandemic, was famous for telling early on people that it could be spread by casual contact to children.
2: Did they listen to the scientists?
1: They didn't. Hmm. They didn't. Or if they did. If they did, they learned over time to get over it. What's missing here is a sense of humility and a sense of America. Why do I say that? I don't know how much about America Anthony Fauci actually knows. I think he may know a lot about infectious diseases. He may um, well, he's a
2: prime example of that bifurcated elite yeah, class yeah, I was talking yeah, about that's earlier. that's where I was going with that's it. That's the exact yeah. issue in that, right. that he has lived his whole life in this beltway bubble, talking to people who went to the same kinds of schools as him, reading the same kind of books as him, and thinking see this the, in the same emails. kinds of precious little ideas this a as club. him. club, right. Bless his heart. He thinks that everyone thinks exactly the same way he does. Right. And he is radically unconvinced that, uh, of the idea that there might be an alternate way of doing things or an alternate way of living one's life.
1: And as opposed to a congressman or senator or radio host, I suppose one could say, or a truck driver, you get to understand what Americans think and what American culture is, as opposed to living in Washington, D.C. for 60 years working in the same building. It's really—I don't want to overstate it, but I don't want to understate it either. I think it is a big issue.
2: Not only that, but but being told over and over again as he has been for this entire year by Those that purportedly are the truth speakers of our society, the press, they have been lionizing this man as, you know, someone who can do no wrong and as the face of reason in our society. That's right. Who would, like, if if I were him, I would have an overinflated ego, too. And I would be convinced that I'm the head of this grand priestly class ready to lead all of us to enlightenment. I make more money than anyone else. Small wonder he's not more arrogant. Right.
1: I've make more money than anyone else in government. I've been wrong a number of times no one seems to care, and I admitted to lying to the American people and no one seems to care. He admitted to lying about herd immunity. Right. When he said it would take 60 to 70%, then he changed it from 70 to 80%, mm-hmm. then 75 to 85%, and when confronted well, on it, he li- said I didn't think
2: the American people. Lying and perjury it. is what the plebs do. What Dr. Fauci does is he shepherds our interests. Mm-hmm. He wasn't lying to us. He was deferring the truth until we could handle it. Mm -hmm.
1: Yes. Yeah. Yes. Uh Or as he said in his words, shifting the goalposts until Americans could handle it. Is there a greater paternalism than that?
2: I really couldn't think so.
1: 30 years ago, we would have just called it lying to the public.
2: You know, I think we could bring that back. It's a good phrase. I'll let you close when we come back. We'll be right back.
1: Thank you, Chris. Thank you, John, for today. Thanks to all of you for spending some of your time with us. It means a ton to us that you've... Allow us into your cars, living rooms, hearts, and minds. Lewis, what's what's ailing you as we end the show?
2: Cuba is ailing me, although I will say uh, you didn't teach me to like Kansas. I already did. Good. Uh, But Cuba is ailing me. As we have uh, a series of protests and troubles uh, uh, in Cuba... The federal government has announced via Homeland Security that it will not allow any Cuban refugees to set foot on the United States and anyone coming by sea will be turned over to a different country. This from the administration, who went on and on and on and on during campaign season about the right of economic migrants from Central America to stroll up through here and have the better life for themselves, and now they're denying it to the real refugees. These people, real are refugees, not, these really people, people are who not need
1: amnesty, full of right?
2: compassion right. for the dispossessed and the downtrodden. They're not looking to help black and brown people everywhere. They're looking to import voters. The problem that they have is that Cubans reliably and consistently vote Republican. There is a disgusting element of the left that is going around online and trying to make the case that Cubans are not Hispanic but actually white because they're more culturally integrated and, quote-unquote, reactionary than real, quote-unquote, Hispanics. And this is disgusting to me. These are the people. These are our – these are the people who say they're standing up for science. These are the people who, you know, claim to be guiding us towards rationality when really they're guiding us to the dark ages and burying us in their blood and soil rhetoric.
1: The reason Cubans who come here vote Republican is because they didn't learn about communism from Ilan Omar, Rashida Talib. They learned about it from living with it. Yes, indeed. And they indeed. never want to do
2: so. The school so. of reality. And
1: they never want to do so again. Until tomorrow, God bless you all. I'm Seth Leibson. He's Lewis Holman. Class is dismissed.